So Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumbled, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, and then Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. I'll give you a second to get there. Starting with verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who has called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thank you, Francis, for inaugurating our, our Advent season. It's a joy to be with you here, and it's a, a joy to celebrate Advent, um, the preparation of our hearts and looking forward to the coming of Christ, and to be reminded of what Francis just read there, that with God, nothing is impossible. And the beauty of that, of course, is that Sinners like us would be saved by God who would come down from heaven and take on human form and human life and condescend to be like us and to live our difficulties, our pain, our sorrow, and ultimately die for us so that we might enjoy the grace and peace and love and joy of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we're thankful for that. Um, 
Next week, uh, Julie and I have to attend a Grace Advance Summit, so we will not be with you next week, but we look forward to coming back the week after on December 22nd or 23rd um, and to be able to celebrate uh, Christmas Sunday with you and to have that privilege and that joy of celebrating the coming of Christ. Well, this morning we're back in 1 Peter. Um, I guess that's no big surprise, right? We're in our series on Standing Firm in the true grace of God, and we reach a momentous point in the scripture during our time together. This is going to be the end of the opening greeting and the end of Peter's discussion of the grace of our election. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I will read through it, and then we will pray afterwards. And this morning, for the sake of what we're going to be talking about, children of perfect purpose, And we're going to be talking about obedience and sprinkling of blood. I will read through the better part of the first chapter for you. 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, But believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. I want to ask you a couple of questions as we round up and finish and conclude Peter's discussion of our election and the grace that has been given to us, the amazing grace that has been given to us in God's plan of election for his children. And the question that I have to ask of you is, what is God's purpose for your life? What is God's purpose for your life? And then the second question is, what is God's desire for your life? What is God's desire for your life? As many of you know from my testimony, and and Han is quite familiar with this, I married very late. I think I was like, I don't know, I was a dinosaur. I was probably 42 or so. And as a result of that, my stature and community was the single man who one day finally got married. And so I frequently get phone calls or emails from single men in particular asking me, should I get married? Should I not get married? Have I been given the gift of celibacy? Have I not been given the gift of celibacy? And the questions go on, and then they start to focus in, what is God's real purpose for my life? What's his desire? Does he desire that I be married? Does he, is his purpose that I marry Jane versus Mary? And these are frequent things that come by my way. And as humorous and, and amusing as it is, the truth is, is that during times of transition or times of uncertainty, questions of what God's purpose for our life is and questions of what God's desire for our life is tend to pop up to the top. They press. They're always there. But when things are uncertain or things are difficult, many of the questions that we ask and many of the things that we struggle with really come down to those two questions and really saying, okay, we know what the Bible says, but what does that really mean now that I'm struggling with job A or job B? Or even questions basically that the church has had to face. Who should our leaders be? What should be the philosophy of ministry? What direction do we need to go in? A, B, C, all of these different things. And at the heart of that are the questions, what is God's purpose for his children? And what, is, what are his desires for his children? And when you think about those questions and how popular they are, you just go to a Christian bookstore and you look on the bookshelf of discerning God's will for your life and you see that it's packed, that many of the bestsellers in Christendom are really about discovering God's purpose for your life. And of course, you know, Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life and all the movements that have arisen around that and the churches that have arisen around that are really cases in point. And yet, I could save you a lot of money and you wouldn't have to read all those books by basically taking you to 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Uh, The outcome of that is I don't think anybody would be buying my books. But Peter is very simple, and he's very straightforward. He says to us, God has a perfect plan for his children, and if you are a child of God, he has a perfect plan for your life. And that perfect plan at its heart and its core is the cross of Christ, is a Savior who came in human form, and lived the life that we could never live, and shed his blood for you, and died for your sins, and has risen from the dead on the third day, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and lives to intercede on your behalf, and has a place in your life 
where your life can be his life. And 1 Peter 1, 2 tells us that God has, in addition to a perfect plan, a perfect purpose for your life. And that perfect purpose, as is pointed out in 1, 2, the perfect purpose is that you would be children who would obey Christ. That that purpose is to obey Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. And with that, God has a perfect desire for your life. And that perfect desire for your life is that grace and peace, the grace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the peace of the Trinity, that these things would be yours and that they would not only be yours in a small amount, but that they would be yours in multiplication and in fullness and that these would be things in your life that would just overflow and reproduce to the point where others are sharing and delighting and enjoying in those things. And this is the perfect plan for the children of God as individuals. This is the perfect plan for the children of God as a whole. And I will go even further to say that this is God's perfect plan for Cornerstone Bible Church, that it would be a church filled with people who would be obedient to Christ, who would be sprinkled with his blood, and where grace and peace would be multiplied in your midst. And the hope that we celebrate when Christ comes or when we talk about Christmas is the idea that God finishes the work that he begins and that he fulfills his promises, he fulfills his purposes, he fulfills his desires, and that those things that are promised to you are not idle promises, but the cross stands as a testimony that those things are given to be and will be a reality in the lives of individual children, in the lives of us as a whole, as the body and bride of Christ. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about God's purposes for our lives as his children, and then I want to talk about God's desires for us. And I want to take those points and say, what does Peter have to say about those things, and how do they look in our individual lives, and how do they look in Cornerstone Bible Church? So let's start first with God's perfect purpose for his children. And as we open that and we look at verse 2, it's fairly obvious and fairly straightforward. He says that our election, our being called out as his children, as children of grace and being called out of the world and being saved by God has happened according to God's perfect plan of love, his foreknowledge. We said that before. And that God has accomplished that not by any merit or means that we accomplish in and of ourselves, but he has given us his spirit who is going to accomplish that in our lives. But for what purpose and for what end is our election being called out to be his children? And Peter states very, very clearly and very obviously at the end of verse 2, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now that seems pretty obvious, does it not? There are two obvious points that come out just by reading this which is plain for anyone to see. You don't have to have Greek or Hebrew and you don't have to be a TMS exegete. The first is that God's purpose for our lives is is twofold. There are two parts to this. One, that we be obedient to Christ. And number two, that we be sprinkled with his blood. And the first portion, the obedience to Christ, it's pretty straightforward. Our lives are meant to be obedient to Christ and they're meant to be like Christ. That is God's purpose for our life. And the other obvious statement apart from this twofold aspect that's brought forward here is that the fulfillment of this purpose takes place where? Does it take place in the church? Does it take place 
in my career? Does it take place in my house? Does it take place in my marriage? Does it take place with the leaders of our church? Ultimately, Peter tells us that this purpose takes place in one place and one place alone. This purpose is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And when we look at these three aspects, the obedience to Christ, sprinkling with his blood, and the fulfillment of all of these things in Jesus Christ, we're really given a blueprint for every aspect of our life. And what you will see as you read through the rest of 1 Peter is 1 Peter takes each aspect of these three things, and he shows how they practically apply to our jobs, to our work with our coworkers, to our marriages, to our church life, to the way leaders relate to members and the way members relate to leaders, that this is really his blueprint of what the Holy Spirit has provided us the power to be. And ultimately, as we sort of wide-angle lens and come back and say, okay, what really is he talking about here? Ultimately, he's talking about our marriage with Christ. Ultimately, he's talking about our marriage with Christ. He is saying by these things, God's purpose for your life is that you would be the perfect bride of Christ, that you would belong wholly and entirely to him, and that every aspect of your life would be new, and it would be new because it is Christ's life. And so in your marriage, your leadership, your ministry, your work, your instruction, your school, that all of these things would be completely covered with the life and the blood and the obedience and the purpose of Christ. It sounds ridiculously simple, does it not? And yet, it is something in our own lives, I think, if we're honest, that we struggle with, that's just incredibly difficult. How often do our marriages become about so many other things than the person who we are married to? How often do our relationships or our leadership or our careers or our jobs become about so many other things, so many other decisions, so many other difficulties, so many other challenges, details in the tyranny of the urgent? And after a season and after a time, we find that the most essential thing in our life our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ suddenly comes at the bottom of the list and we find that it's the details of our life that are ruling our life and very much the heart of our lives, of our fallen flesh, which are ruling our lives rather than Christ and Christ who is there and Christ who should be alone. And yet the beauty of God's word and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of what Peter will show us is that the Lord has provided us with a way in order for him to accomplish that in our lives. And so to answer that question, I want to look at what exactly does it mean to be the bride of Christ? What exactly does it mean to be obedient to Christ? What is it exactly does it mean to be sprinkled with his blood? And what does it ultimately mean to live a life that is completely fulfilled in Christ and in no other place? And to answer that question, we need to consider Peter's direction in this, because the question comes up, okay, obedience, I get that. That's pretty straightforward. I need to do what God's word tells me to do. But what about sprinkling of blood, and what does that look like on my daily life, and what does that look like in my marriage? And as we consider Peter, Peter provides us with a framework to understand that. As you look at Peter and what we just read, when you see Peter in 1 Peter, the focus so much in his framework of understanding what he's writing 
is first and foremost Jesus Christ and the cross, which is always Peter's centerpiece, something that he shunned and he avoided in his life before the cross. And the second aspect is the scriptures in the Old Testament, that as he was mentored by Jesus as we walked through that, Jesus would continually bring him back to the scriptures and point to Peter and, and tell him and show him the things that were going to be happening and showed him that we're to interpret our circumstances and our scenario and our situations, not through our own eyes, not through our own emotions, not through our own feelings, but through the light of scripture. And as we look at 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, we see Peter's hermeneutic, if you will. He basically says, as the salvation, as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter makes the point that everything that existed in the Old Testament was written by the Holy Spirit and was written for the purpose of pointing to the suffering and the glories of Christ and was written so that we might understand God's perfect plan and God's perfect purposes for our life. And so when we look at 1 Peter 1-2, when you see that purpose clause that's there where he says that purpose, God's perfect purpose for our lives is to obey Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, An examination of that shows that he is actually referring to a phrase that's found in Exodus, that's found in Exodus 24. And it's a phrase that is used in covenant language, in the covenant at Sinai. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 24. As you turn there, let me give you the background on Exodus 24. God has saved his people from the bondage of slavery. God has delivered them from the darkness of the oppression of the nation of Egypt, which is the world power at that time. God has heard their cry. God has honored his promise to Abraham, and he has delivered these people, and he has brought them out, and he has brought them through the Red Sea, and then he has brought them into the wilderness of the Sinai. And he is, as we get to Exodus 24, about to fulfill what he said earlier to Pharaoh. He asked Pharaoh, release these people so that they can come and they can worship me. And so as he's brought them out and he's bringing them to Sinai, he's bringing them for a very momentous moment. It's for the purpose that they might worship him as a people by entering into a covenant relationship with their God by entering into a covenant relationship with God. And what happens on Mount Sinai is the procedure of the Sinai or the Mosaic Covenant, what we refer to as the Old Covenant. And as God does that, what he is doing as we look at this is he's becoming one with his people after he's saved them and he's delivered them. And in that covenant, he is outlining to them the nature of his love for them, but also the privileges and the responsibilities of his love. When you talk about covenant, many people look at the idea of covenant as a legal contract between two people or two parties, a legal contract between two people or two parties. And yet, the idea of covenant, when we look at it that way, is so small and so narrow. And when you look at the idea of covenant in God's hands, What we're really talking about 
is a relationship of God's perfect love. You're talking about a relationship of God's perfect love. And a relationship of God's perfect love that is governed by his word that stipulates the blessings of that love, the privileges of that love, and yet at the same time, the obligations and the responsibilities of that love. And when we think of it in those terms, a covenant is very much like a marriage and the institution of marriage. And if we were to talk about marriage, if I was to say to you that my marriage with Julie is a legal contract between two people, I don't know how happy Julie would be with that definition, but I think you'd agree with me that that really falls short of everything that that marriage encompasses. And yet at the same time, I think you would also say that if I was just hanging out with Julie indefinitely and there was no formal event where I testified before people and professed my love for her, as well as my agreements and my commitments to care for her and protect her and provide her for her and to honor her as God has told me to honor her until death do us part, I think you would also say that that would kind of fall short a little bit of what a true marriage in the eyes of God is all about. And that gives us some notion of this idea of covenant, of the covenant that God is entering with his people. He is not providing this covenant for these people to somehow prove that they can be saved by God if I stipulate and I obey every aspect. No. This is an expression of love for God, for his people. And this is a willingness and a submission and an acceptance and a rejoicing by the people of the love that God has given them. And that's what's happening in Exodus 24. And so I'm going to read to you Exodus 24, 1 through 8. And I think you'll start to see the ties and the links that happen to the idea of obedience and sprinkling with blood and how God's purpose for us is a purpose of his covenant love, his covenant love in which God becomes one with his people and he pours his grace and his love and his mercy and his peace into our lives in abundance. And I'm going to start first at Exodus 21 and then start at 24.1. Exodus 21, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then from 21 all the way to 20, 20, chapter 24 are the commandments and the law of God that he gives. And then at Exodus 24.1, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, 
the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It's a pretty graphic description for what amounts to, in many ways, a marriage ceremony in which God has made himself one with his people and brought them to himself and made them his bride. And as we see afterwards in the Old Testament, God will repeatedly refer to them, his chosen people, as his bride. And when things fall apart and people betray the covenant and do not fulfill the covenant, Ultimately, the prophets will refer to the nation of Israel as an unfaithful wife. That these are acts of infidelity in the betrayal of the covenant. And the covenant really, as we look at it this way, is really a framework for the love of God and the grace of God in the life of the people. And as we look at that covenant and what we just read, there are three parts in this covenant. There are three parts in this covenant that express these things. The first is the giving of the word of the Lord. The first is the giving of the word of the Lord, that God gives his law to these people. And many people look at this as, okay, this is legalism. These are the list of do's and don'ts. But what we fail to consider many times is how that law is given and what's the first portion of that law that's given. In Exodus 21, It states, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That God is doing at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, he's essentially expressing his love to his people and he's proving it to them. He's not saying, I'm just the Lord, anybody's God. He's saying, I'm the Lord, your God. And to have the right of possession to have the opportunity and the right and the privilege to say that Julie is my wife speaks volumes about our relationship. And for God to come to these people and give them his word where he's saying, I am the Lord, your God, and then clarifies to them his love for them by what he has done, the fact that he has delivered them from the oppression and the bondage of slavery and brought them out and that he has saved them and called them out to be a people for himself from the world, is a huge profession of love. And we have to see the rest of the law within that context. And so as we come to the covenant, the anchor of the covenant is God's love for his people and his salvation for his people. And then the second aspect of that is the issue of covenant obedience. It's the issue of covenant obedience, that the people hear this word and they are standing before the Lord. And as they hear the word of the Lord, God saying who he is, his love for them, and then the framework and the responsibilities of that love, what do they say? They say, everything that you say, we will do. And then as we go down, To verse 7, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. The actual translation for that word obedient in the second is actually we will hear or we will guard. And what we look at with obedience here oftentimes is remarkably different than the obedience that we think of in our daily lives. I think of obedience, my boss tells me to do something, I go and do it, everybody's happy and everything is good. I'd like my child to obey me, he's not able to, but I'd like to be able to say, son, clean up your room, and it happens. And we think of obedience in that way. But when we look at the obedience of covenant love obedience, 
We're talking about an obedience of faith and we're talking about an obedience of love. And the obedience that's demonstrated here has two parts. It has the part of hearing and it has the part of doing. And many times we lose one or the other. And the notion of hearing in the Old Testament is that we are honoring the person who is speaking to us. That we are taking what they say seriously. That because of who they are, we need to listen. And we need to hold their words in high esteem. And we hold them in such high esteem that we are willing to submit to their will and do as they ask. And we see some of this a little bit in our friendships, in our relationships, in our marriage. And I've said this to you many times before. If I said, I love Julie, but anytime she talked to me, I basically said, whatever, what would that say about my love for Julie? And so often in our conflicts and in our relationships with people or one another, so often the thing that we hear people say is, you're not hearing me, you're not hearing me. And many times when I'm in those situations, I'm saying, of course I'm hearing you. I've heard, I've heard everything you said. I just don't agree with what you're saying. And then you realize that what's trying to be communicated there in that conversation is the person is really saying not that you're not hearing me. It's you're not esteeming me and taking what I say seriously and honoring that. And when we look at the idea of the obedience of covenant love, it's the obedience of faith where people are looking at God and saying, you are the Lord, our God, who saved us and has loved us and rescued us. We hear what you say. We honor who you are. We recognize that your word is more important than our word. And we're willing to receive it. And we're willing to do everything that you've asked because of who you are and who we are. That's what covenant obedience is. But there's a second aspect. There's covenant obedience. There's the covenant word, which is the word of love. There's the covenant sprinkling. As we see in Exodus 24, there's a very graphic description that there's all these sacrifices that have happened and Moses has taken the blood and there's an awful lot of blood that's there and he's divided it in half. And half of it, he uses basically and, and puts against the altar, throws it against the altar. And then the other half, after the people have said, we will obey the Lord, he takes that blood and he throws it on the people. For those of you who have been physicians, we have been in that situation where blood has been sprinkled on us and it was an unwelcome experience. Usually meant a trip down to the public health and the... Uh, make sure that we got all our shots and got tested for everything. Why is that? Because the concern is about being contaminated with the disease and germs or everything that that blood is carrying. Here we see the reverse. Here we see the reverse. What's the significance of the sprinkling of blood on the people? When we go to Leviticus and we go to Genesis, the Old Testament scriptures tell us that the life is in the blood that the life is in the blood, that blood is a symbol in the eyes of God for the life that he has given to each one of us. And that is a life that is not our own because he created us. That life is his. And that's one of the reasons why the wages of sin is death. That's why when someone's life is taken, 
That person's blood of the life that's been taken is on the hands of the one who murdered. It's the idea or notion that it's life for life in the eyes of God, that our God is a righteous God and that our God is a holy God. And when Paul says that the wages of sin is death, what he's pointing out is that every breach of the will and word of God is the equivalent of the taking of an innocent life or the destroying of an innocent life. Because ultimately what we're doing is we're taking the life that God has given us, which is his gift and his property, and we've used it for our own ends to destroy and to take his glory. And ultimately what we've done is we've taken a life from God. And what God requires from that is a life in return. Blood is the symbol of life, and blood sprinkled and blood shed is the symbol of a life taken violently. And when that blood is sprinkled on the people, there are two messages that are being sent. First of all, you have no right to be in this relationship with God because of your sin. And there is nothing that you can do to get rid of your sin or make yourself right before the Lord. That a sacrifice has been given and made and provided by the Lord for your sin and he has given it. And only innocent life that is shed on your behalf can cover your sins and make atonement and make things right before the Lord. It is the blood of atonement and the blood of sacrifice. And as the people stand there and that blood, it covers them. A message is being sent that innocent life has come and is being given to each one of you and you are being covered with innocent life. And that innocence is being transferred to you, not at your expense, but at God's expense. The second aspect of the sprinkling of blood is the notion of consecration and dedication. It's the idea that because you deserve to die, but instead God has shed innocent blood to pay the price for your sins and has brought you into this relationship, that your life is one that has been redeemed. It is one that has been bought. And your life is now no longer your own but your life in its entirety is the property of the God of the covenant. Therefore, you are not in a position to be a free agent, and you are not in a position to do whatever you please or you think, because this is no longer your life, but this is God's life. And we see many of the same illustrations in our marriages, do we not? Where the notion is that we lived a particular single life before we got married, but after we get married, if we're really honoring our marriage vows, we do not think of ourselves as I, but we think of ourselves as we. And the life that we live, we live no longer for our own pleasures or our own concerns or our own benefits, but we're really living, if we're living rightly, for God and for the other person. That they would be exalted, that they would be benefited, that they would be nurtured, and that their words would be taken seriously. And to a certain extent, there is a notion which should be furthered, that a godly marriage or a marriage that truly honors the Lord is one in which we are dying to ourselves and dying to our own desires and wishes and living for God and living for our spouse. And I'll extend that one step further. What we're talking about is the notion of atonement, and atonement is not just an issue of sacrifice. Atonement and the shedding of blood 
is the basis of our unity with God, but it's also the basis of our unity with one another. It's also the basis of our unity with one another. That this was given to the people individually, but it was given to them as a whole, as a nation. And the idea is, as we are one with God and we are covered with the blood that he provides, we will also be at one with one another because the sins that divide us and the sins that separate and destroy our relationship with God are being addressed by him. And we have the opportunity not to be divided, but we have the opportunity to be united. Ultimately, God in his perfect marriage is pursuing a covenant unity with his people. And as we look at that covenant unity with the people, we see that those three aspects, the word, obedience, and the sprinkling of blood, all three of those are connected. And you cannot have one without the other. If you get rid of the word, then you ask, who are you really obeying? And you're dealing with false worship. If you get rid of the obedience, but you still have the sacrifice, then we are like the people in the Old Testament, how often they offered sacrifices to the Lord, but their hearts were far from that. And we see similar illustrations with people who would like to live by the grace of God, but refuse or decline to obey the word of God. And we see that that does not promote the covenant unity and that does not honor the covenant unity that is there. And if we live by sacrifice without the other two, what do we have? If we live by obedience without sacrifice, then what are we doing? We're becoming self-righteous people, are we not? Where we're living by our obedience, but we are not saying that I stand here alone by the grace of God and then my obedience becomes a standard for other people to be obedient to me and to be frustrated or upset that other people are not obeying the way I'm obeying. The idea here is that we are taking God seriously for who he is and we are taking our sin seriously for what he says it is and we are saying that in and of ourselves, we have no way to fix our sin problem that comes in and divides, and we are wholly dependent on the work of God. But what's the hope of that? That God in his covenant love, and that God in his covenant sacrifice, and that God in his covenant word has provided every means we need to be at one with him and to be at one with one another. That's what Peter's referring to in 1 Peter 1 and 2. And so as we go back to 1 Peter 1, verse 2, and you look at the obedience and sprinkling with blood, what's the distinction here between this and Exodus 24? The distinction here is that the word that is brought here is a more complete word than the word in the Old Testament. That the word that is here is the living word of Jesus Christ who came in human form and to be present. What is the obedience that's here? The obedience here is not to the law of the old covenant, but the obedience is here to a better mediator than the law and a better word. It's the word of the gospel. It is the command that we believe in Christ and that we do that all that he has commanded us. It is an obedience to Christ. And what is the blood that's shed here? Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. 
And the blood that we're talking about here is not the blood of animals, but we're talking about the very blood of the Son of God. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 22 and 23. Peter says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable. That is through the living, enduring word of God. And then have a look at verse 14 and 17 of chapter 1. He says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then he goes on in 19 and 20, he says, excuse me, 18, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers but with precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. What's Peter saying here? What's he bringing to our case as he points to us that this is God's purpose for our life? The old covenant in Exodus 24 existed as a shadow of better things to come. And it was written by the Spirit of Christ, looking forward to point us to the suffering of Christ and the glory of Christ, and anticipating the people of God, the people of God who would be completely fulfilled in Christ. And what we see is that Christ is the one who fulfilled that old covenant. He was the one who obeyed perfectly. He was the one who fully received and incarnated the word of God. And he was the one who died on the cross to provide the perfect sacrifice of innocent life and innocent blood. And God's purpose for his children and his people would be the, we would be the recipients of the fullness of that love, that Christ would be fully ours, that we would receive him like a groom that is welcome. God's purpose for us is that by the power of the Spirit, We would honor that word by hearing that word and honoring it from coming from Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and in love and in gratitude that we would live lives of obedience and in living lives of obedience to his word that our lives would be filled with joy, our lives would be filled with love, our lives would be filled with grace and would be filled with mercy, and that our lives would begin to be holy and that we would look like Christ. And God's purpose for our life is that we would stand as people who are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, that all our sins would be washed, and that we would be wholly dedicated and set apart so that we would realize that the entirety of Christ's life that's represented in his blood, his obedience, his love for the Father, his suffering, his rejection, his death on the cross, and his resurrection that all of those things would be ours and that we would be covered with his life rather than our life. And God, through Peter, is essentially saying, I love you so much, I love my son so much, that the father's perfect love for the son is that he would have a perfect bride. But here's the grace, that God's love for us is such that though we are sinners and we don't deserve to be at the altar, God does not reject us, 
but God washes us and cleans us and provides us with the wedding dress and the wedding ceremony and everything that we need to show up to that altar. And the Lord, out of love for us and the love for son, his son, says, I will create for you anew by virtue of your blood and by virtue of my spirit, a perfect bride for you for a perfect marriage. That's what God is doing in our lives. And Romans 8, 28 and 29 and the entirety of scriptures and 1 Peter as he talks to us about trials and tribulations makes the point that nothing is gonna stop God's will for his chosen and his elect and that God will stop at nothing to perfect his bride and to provide a perfect bride for his son. And if that means trials and tribulations, he will do that. If that means difficulties and hardship, he will do that. If it means suffering and illness and disease and the loss of beloved family members, though we would prefer not to have that, he will do that. If it means challenges in the local church, he will do that. If it means that there are seasons in our lives that we have to step away from certain things or we are not able to do the things we feel called to do or we feel we've been created to do, guess what? God will do that. Why? Because he loves us so much that he's not going to let anything stop in the way of us being completely conformed to the image of the Son and that we would be one with him and that we would be one with one another and that we would be truly children who are at one with Christ and one another, that we would be children of the atonement. That's his perfect plan and that's his perfect purpose. What does that look like in our lives? What are the implications and the applications of the new covenant? God's purpose is not that the new covenant is some theological word in a textbook. God's purpose is that this new covenant and the new covenant in his love and the new covenant that Jesus celebrated when he said, this is my blood that's shed for you and this is my body that's given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant that he inaugurated with his own blood and sealed his children with. It's meant to transform every aspect of our life until Christ comes so that we are becoming that perfect bride. And as we look at that, we've got to say, okay, how is his word present in my life? How is obedience present in my life? And how is his blood present in my life? And as we look at that, we see, okay, in my marriage, in my conflicts, in my work, in my leadership, where do those three aspects play a role? As we look at the Apostle Peter before the cross, what we see is Jesus continually trying to bring these three things into Peter's life, and Peter constantly pushing back. In Matthew 16 and Matthew 26, Jesus shepherds Peter from the Word, and Jesus points to the fact that he must go to the cross and he must die, and if you remember, Peter resists that. And in Matthew 26, Jesus takes the men to the Old Testament and says the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And what's Peter's response? I'm not having any of that. I'm going to do things my own way. And so we see Peter as he's confronted with the word of Christ at the point that the word becomes something that he can't live with or is too uncomfortable for him. Peter rejects that word. Doesn't do it formally doesn't come out 
And one time he does, but ultimately he basically says, I'm going to follow the word as much as this is working for me, and Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of my dreams of a messianic kingdom here and now. But at the point that God's word says that someone who I love is going to have to suffer unjustly, I'm not going to hear that word, and I'm not going to accept that word. I'm going to do my own thing. So you know that Peter rejected that word. How did that play out? It played out in an unwillingness to hear and do what Christ said and ultimately ended up with Peter denying Jesus three times. What about the blood? What about the blood? Ultimately, as we see Peter following that path of rejecting the word and rejecting obedience, we see Peter continually trying to fix things himself. And I've shared with the men who are elder nominees how often I am guilty of this. Things get busy. Lots of decisions have to be made. Lots of problems need to be fixed. Days, weeks go by, and then ultimately it's Mark Chin trying to solve all these problems in his own strength. And Peter did the same thing, ultimately. He came up with alternate plans. He did what he thought he should do. And ultimately it crashed and burned. Why? Because Peter's best efforts and Peter's obedience apart from the word and Peter's attempts to fix things apart from the cross were doomed to fail. Why? Because the cross and the blood is a testimony of the fact that our biggest problem with anything is our own sin. Our problem with God is our sin. Our problem with one another is our sin. Our problem in our marriages is our sin. Our problem in our leadership is our sin. My problem with my son ultimately is my sin. And I can blame my son as much as I want for repeatedly not listening to him, but ultimately I am responsible as a father before the Lord. And the breakdown in the situation is my sin. And the only thing that can remedy that sin is the cross of Christ, is his blood. There's no plan that I can hatch that's going to fix that. None whatsoever. And the more I come up with a plan that makes everybody feel better, all I'm doing is I'm just delaying things until that sin accumulates and my sin accumulates and then there's an explosion. And we saw that with Peter as he crashed and burned. Where do we see Peter after the cross? After the cross, we see a very different Peter. We see a humbled and broken man who stands before the Savior. We see someone who is willing to receive the nurturing of the Savior, and we see the one who is willing to hear everything that the Savior has to say. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? We see a Peter who's willing to receive that. We see a Peter who is willing to say, I can do nothing apart from the blood of Christ, and I have no right to say or be entitled to do anything apart from that. And ultimately, we see a Peter who's willing to be obedient and to be obedient as he is sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And what do we see? We see a Peter who's restored. And what does that restoration bring? Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. That Peter, as he's restored by the blood of the Lamb and the word of Christ, is restored by the love of God. And as he's restored by the love of God, his sins are covered, he is forgiven, and he becomes one with Christ by power of the Holy Spirit, and he becomes one with his fellow sheep, and he becomes the shepherd who shepherds those sheep. And ultimately, in many ways, one of the greatest shepherds the history of Christendom has ever seen. This, a man who denied Christ three times. That is the power of the blood, brothers and sisters. 
But it's only the power of the blood that can do that. It's only when we're at that point where we're willing to say, I can't do anything here. Are we willing to do it in that way? What does that look like in our lives? When I'm in a conflict, when I'm in a difficult situation, are we asking ourselves when things deteriorate in a discussion, whether it's between me and Julie or a friend or a fellow leader or a coworker, hard feelings come, we're hurt, unkind things are said, we're burdened because these are people we love and we've invested huge amounts of time with. And our response, my response is to defend myself initially and to be defensive and to explain why I did what I did and to try and find resolution. And in my mind, the lie is that if I could only explain myself better and provide more information, perhaps this person would understand me and be sympathetic and we could be resolved. And yet the real question here that I need to consider first is, am I listening to Christ? Am I hearing his word? Am I hearing what he has to say? And whose voice is loudest here? My voice? my opponent's voice, my wife's voice, my child's voice, or is it the voice of Christ that is loudest? And have I considered what his word has to say? And am I going to be willing and patient enough to go back as a child of God and say, maybe I can't pursue things until I've scratched my head and gone back to the scriptures and really considered what the Lord's direction is here? Am I willing to hear? And am I willing to do what he says, even if it hurts, even if it means I have to die to myself? or even if it means that there might be pain and suffering, or even if it doesn't go the way I think things should go? Am I willing to obey with the obedience of faith to say that God's word is more important than mine? And finally, am I going to basically consider the sprinkling of the blood? And am I going to stand as someone who is covered with the blood of Christ and say that I can't fix this issue Only the Spirit of God and the blood of Christ can fix this issue. Those are the only things that save me as a believer, and those are the only things that are going to resolve this issue. Nothing I can say in and of myself is going to fix this situation. Am I willing to look at the other person as someone who is covered with the blood of Christ as a brother and sister and say, look, this person is a sinner saved by grace. They're not a perfect person. But you know what? They're covered by the blood of Christ and they stand there as a brother and sister. And in God's time and in God's way, by the power of his spirit, not the work of man, God promises to finish the work that he's begun in their life. And maybe even if I am speaking truth to them and we're sharing the word, maybe in a week, maybe in two weeks, maybe in three weeks, maybe they'll get it then. Am I willing to wait upon the Lord for that? I've resolved in my marriage, and I fail miserably in this, that before I raise a concern with my wife, I will spend time in prayer before I do so. Julie will tell you that my success rate is probably around 30, 35%. But I think I've realized very, very quickly that unless I'm praying and going to the Lord and asking him to fix this situation, I'm a fool if I think I can resolve something that has been brought between the two of us. And I have found, brothers and sisters, that as I've waited upon the Lord and given him a chance to operate and do what needs to be done, that there are many times after that that both Julie and I will both come together and talk about things and realize that there were things in both our lives that the Lord was speaking to us and wanted to change in our lives and has brought us to the same place and not a word had to be spoken. And you realize that it's the spirit of the Lord that's at work in our lives. 
What is the hope of the new covenant? The hope of the new covenant is that you are not alone, but that God has a perfect plan for your life. And that is that you would be the bride of Christ, that God has a perfect provision for your life, that that is the Holy Spirit who is applying the life of Christ to your life, and that God has a perfect purpose for your life, that that purpose is that you would be the perfect and spotless bride of Christ, and he's provided you with a blueprint of how to get there. It's about the presence of his word, it's about the obedience of faith, and it's about truly standing as children who have not been redeemed by silver or gold, but who have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. What is the hope that comes with that? The hope is that as we are standing in the atonement and we're one with Christ and one with one another, grace, mercy, and peace will be ours in its fullness. And that is God's desire for you. God's desire is that his grace, his mercy, his shalom, his peace would not just be yours in a small amount, but that it would abound and multiply and overflow so much so that you don't know what to do with it and you have to give it to others. And others will come and see and come and know the Lord and drink from the fountain of living waters. And as they do so, they will be refreshed and they will give to others. That is the testimony of the cross. And that is God's desire for you. And that is my desire for Cornerstone Bible Church. And it is not an idle concern. And it is not an idle wish. Why? Because the cross and the blood of Christ stands as our guarantee. And because of that, it's our hope. This is the glory of our election. This is the glory of our choosing. This is the glory of our privilege. And it is a glory that carries with it responsibility, but it is a glory no less. And when we stand in its glory, what man can boast? And what man can say, I've accomplished this, or this is of me? No man can stand, and no man can boast. And all we can do is stop our mouths and be humble before the glory and grace of God. And when there's a humility that comes from the glory of God in our midst, brothers and sisters, there is a grace and mercy and peace. And there is a joy which comes because the Lord indeed is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what we're going to celebrate at Christmas this year. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you and thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We thank you that you've given us your word and we thank you that you've given us your life and we thank you that you've given us your blood. Lord Jesus, you alone can fix our sin and our problems. But the beauty is that you have indeed done so and it's your desire for us that we be your perfect bride and it's your desire for us that we be rich in your word, rich in obedience, rich in your spirit, and rich in the sprinkling of your blood. And it's your desire for us, Lord Jesus, that we would be full of grace and peace. And the good news that we have because of our election and because of God's perfect plan and his perfect provision is that your desires will be fulfilled in Christ and will be completed. 
and that our hope, O Lord, is not in ourselves, but our hope is in you. And this we pray, amen.